morning, everybody. My name's Gillian Tett. I'm with the Financial Times, and I'm going to be chairing what some of you might think is the do-gooding panel, the panel on ESG, environmental, social and governance issues, and impact investing. And I have to be honest, when I first heard the phrase ESG as a journalist a few years ago, I joked to colleagues that it should stand for eye roll, sneer, and groan in the sense that to a journalist used to covering the financial markets, having covered Wall Street for years and the great financial crisis, a lot of this seemed to be a lot about corporate PR spin rather than hardcore investing and didn't seem to be particularly core to the financial sector. Well, guess what? I was dead wrong. Because in the last few years, the ESG world has exploded in size dramatically and it's become very clear that ESG is actually about a fundamental zeitgeist shift that no company or investor can afford to ignore. It's about moving from tunnel vision, where you just look at a narrow definition of the balance sheet, towards lateral vision, where you recognize that things that used to be viewed as footnotes in the balance sheet or externalities to the economic models, like the environment, actually cannot be ignored. They're not external they really matter. It's about recognizing that ESG is not so much about activism these days, about trying to change the world. It's also about risk management, about recognizing the environmental risks, the social risks, the supply chain risks, and other issues that can trip up investors and companies if they think that ESG is just eye roll, sneer, and groan. It really matters. So we have a fantastic group of people to talk about this with us today. Um, starting on the far, my far left, your right, we've got Tina Barr-Williams, who is Chief Executive Officer from Exponance, Large Asset Manager. Next to her is Gareth Shepard, who's Co-Head of Equity Machine Intelligence at Voya. Next to him is Karen Carniel-Tamble, who's Co-Chief Investment Officer for Sustainability at Bridgewater. Then we have Les Brune, who's Co-Founder of Aaron Alternatives, and Fahin Alaboy, who's head of the Development Finance Initiative at JP Morgan. So, four asset managers and one banker. Thank you for coming here today. Welcome. It's great to have you. And what I want to do in this conversation is not talk so much about the why of ESG, because we could spend a lot of time looking backwards at that. I want to talk about the how and how it's changing and what people in this audience need to know about the shifts in the space, which are very rapid. Perhaps I can start with you, Gareth, and say, from your perspective, what are the key ways in which the ESG and impact investing world is changing right now that people here need to know about, even if they haven't traditionally cared much about trying to do good? So if I can start with, uh, it's been a long time, but if I can start with a, a George Bushism, I think ESG is misunderestimated uh, <laughs> in many different ways. but. One of the main ways in recent times, it's been labeled a fad, as you said, Gillian, but we're at a point now where even in the US, uh, which is behind Europe, et cetera, there's about $12 trillion in assets in public markets that are allocated to ESG strategies. That's a big, that's a big and growing part of the book. In fact, many of the flows are going in that direction. So clearly, if it's a fad, it's, it's, it's a pretty long-term and a pretty, pretty big fad. So we, we definitely think there are uh, a lot of things happening that makes this legitimately 
an important source of future growth and value. And in part, it's a convergence of incredible new sets of data, which can really make it hard for companies to hide. It's a convergence of new technologies, so machine learning, uh, natural language processing, all of these technologies can be brought to bear on very specific problems. Uh, and it's, it's also a consequence of some new thinking on the topic. And we're getting much more rigorous now. You know, this is not a, this is not a cottage industry and a starry-eyed view. This is rigorous investment managers applying uh, the same tools that they do to financial analysis through ESG. And there is some value to be gained if you dig deep enough. Right. Well, I'm going to come back to the question of data and greenwashing later on. But Karen, I'd like to ask you from Bridgewater's point of view, because Bridgewater has spent much of the last few decades not looking like it was out to try and save the planet, but rather to make a lot of money um, for its founders. Why has Bridgewater got involved in this? And what for you are the key big challenges right now? So Bridgewater, uh, we've been around for 40 years. And the one constant we've always had is engaging with our clients that are investors all around the world to basically say, how do you accomplish your goals? How do you best engineer for that? Start with a deep understanding of whatever it is happening in the world and markets, and then engineer for that. And three, three and a half years ago, I led a small team saying, I think more and more of our clients are going to be interested in thinking about environmental and social goals when they're investing. And I think it seemed a little bit crazy that the type of investors that we have that are large global institutions would feel this way. Today, that's taken almost as a given. We have almost no investors around the world that don't think about these issues with the simple understanding that investment is about taking money and leaving it for some time in the future for the next generation or generations. More and more people are asking themselves, what's the point in thinking about investing for the next generations if the world I'm leaving behind is not the world I really want to leave behind? So different investors have different ways of thinking about how they incorporate these goals. But in our minds, we want to be there to apply the same rigor, the same structure, the same amount of you know, deep, systematic, and fundamental understanding to this new set of challenges. And it's really, in my view, pretty revolutionary in terms of how you look at markets to have to incorporate the impact on the world dimension into everything you look at. And so an analogy I often make is risk management. When risk management was new, it seemed like a, a, a fundamental change from just talking about how much an investment was going to make to thinking about risk. And we've developed, I mean, just decades now of different ways to measure risk. You can have a tail risk, you can have this kind of measure, that kind of measure. And it seems obvious to all of us that as investment professionals, of course, we have to do very deep and rigorous risk analysis. That seems obvious. In my view, we're going towards a world where that same amount of rigor, it'll seem obvious to investors that you need to do rigorous analysis of how your investments affect the real world. What is their interaction with the social, the environment, the governance of the world? That'll seem just as intuitive to us as a risk practice. And we decided we're very committed to developing that, to developing that same amount of rigor uh, to that sort of study. Right. I mean, it's interesting you say three and a half years ago, because in fact, three, four years ago was when I first started paying attention to ESG. And we noticed that certainly amongst the readers of the Financial Times, there was a huge increase in interest, a huge rise in the hit rate of stories linked to things like climate. 
Um, and partly because of that, um, we went out at the Financial Times and created this platform called Moral Money, which is a newsletter that covers ESG issues. And I'll be honest, you know, we had people inside the FT saying, you know, well, do we really need to do this? It, you know, is this really going to be core FT stuff? It's become one of our most successful new newsletters, um, one of our most highly read bits of our newsletter universe, um, you know, which has come as a surprise to many people. And really something did change about three or four years ago. Um, I do want to get to, to the question in a moment about whether, though, we're seeing a bit of a bubble in this area. Before we do, though, Lee, can you tell me, from the point of view of Ariel, how and when did you guys start focusing on this? And how core is it to your investment operations now? So it's, it, it, thank you for the question. Um, and good morning to everyone. Um, ESG, three initials that, three, three letters that have varying meanings to different constituencies. And so <laughs> I'll start with the premise that no one really has focused on a general consensus-driven definition to the term. And so everyone focuses on that which is most important or that which resonates most for them. And at least in the corporate world in which I tend to live, the focus has been on the E and less so, and the G and less so on the S. And so from Ariel's perspective, we're focused on the S. And that is to suggest, as, as, as Ken was suggesting, that folks who are investing have a view as to what it is that they would like that investment to yield, both from a financial return perspective as well as from a social impact perspective or a broader impact perspective. And there's now this convergence and a belief fundamentally that you can do good and do well at the same time. So you can actually, there, there is no discord, there is no disconnect between achieving an appropriate financial return and accomplishing some other element of your mission, especially as we look at a world that is to be inherited by a group of people who are mission driven in many respects and for whom these questions are of equal and in some instances greater importance then what is that financial return that's driving the, the activity that you're undertaking? So from our point of view and from our limited little world, we're trying to do those things which have a significant S impact in trying to begin to address the inequality that exists between the majority community and the black and brown communities, both in terms of wealth creation and life in, in, in more broad terms. So you're treating it more like an impact investment opportunity, are you, or more of a kind of targeted um, hunt for new opportunities yeah. for investment? Yeah, you know, there's a, there's a tendency to fall into the need to check a box in terms of a definition. Mm -hmm. And I think of it as being a true capitalist and investing for a solid financial return first and foremost, but being able to do that in a way which drives as a corollary an appropriate in, uh, social impact, if you will. So yes, we're socially we're driven by a social impact to some degree, but that can only come if you generate the appropriate financial return. Otherwise, it's broadly philanthropy. Right. Well, Tina, you are also quite focused on the S factor, aren't you? Because, and it's worth stressing that because certainly in, when we started Moral Money at the Financial Times in the summer of 2019, for the first six months or so, almost everything was about the E, the environmental aspect. Um, courtesy of Greta Thunberg, who has this wonderful knack for ir irritating middle-aged um, CEOs um, and putting herself on the front page. So everything was about E. And yet, of course, COVID put S into the um, radar to a greater degree. And then, of course, the Black Lives Matter movement, again, put S into the radar more. 
But I mean, how do you navigate the S? And are you looking at all aspects or just the S factor? No, we look at all aspects, but you know, the last 20 months have been a wake up call that have sort of refocused the importance of addressing the S, right? Um, and so, you know, you know, Exponence is 25 years old, and, you know, the notion of diversity being an alpha driver was core to our founding mission. Um, and so, you know, we incorporate ESG factors across our fixed income and equity strategies. Um, we have multi-manager strategies of the roughly 200 uh, products that were seeded, 60% were offered by female or diverse founders. And then in our, um, in our private equity business, which is focused on providing uh, strategic acceleration and seed capital to diverse and female-owned uh, GPs in the mid-market, again, it's this notion that that focus leads to differentiated alpha. Why? Because in the mid-market, you have founders, tend to find founder-led firms um, where performance is competitive and uh, dynamics. And then particularly diverse private equity GPs we've found have um, access to differentiated network and the ability to proprietarily access deals in under-researched, under under-invested segments of the economy. So I would just sum it up to say, we live and are entirely about, in our entire history, about the notion of driving alpha through diversity and ESG factors. Right. Well, I'm going to come back and ask both of you in a second about how this does or does not impact returns and create opportunities, because yeah. we have an audience that's all about returns and opportunities. But before I do, I'd like to turn to you, Fahin. Um, you're looking at the development finance inst institutions from the point of view of JP Morgan, which used to be seen as a rather kind of, you know, slow moving, um, sedate part of the financial landscape, you know, lots of multilateral groups doing projects. And yet now it's really in the crosshairs of a lot of investors because if we are going to start moving the dial on things like green climate initiatives, there's going to be, have to be a lot of blended finance, a lot of investment capital flowing into innovative types of financing structures. Can you give us a sense of what, what you're up to from J.P. Morgan's point of view? Thank you, uh, Jillian. Um, no, I think absolutely. I think that the other realization to talk about about trends is that this is not just a uh, U.S. developed world or financial sector issue, right? This is a global issue. And um, we've seen this. I think COVID has also highlighted we have a global health pandemic, right? You've had supply chain issues that affect global you know, companies. And so as we kind of work together, uh, there are many of these uh, different uh, institutions that can come and play a role. And I think, for example, um, you know, development finance, what has brought to the market are two things. One is an impact framework. I think these institutions have been way ahead. So I think well before your three-year mark, I think 15, 20 years ago, all the MDDs and DFIs had a framework to evaluate ENS risk, environmental and social risk, 
and to look at impact metrics. And so I think that's something that we have taken from the MDBs is to have a framework to say, when I look at a transaction, what are the development caps? What are the investment contributions? And how can I bring increased disclosure to my clients? So as a sell-side player in the market, our job is to work with our clients to help them raise money, but to tell the whole story to their clients. And today, uh, investor clients want to know about ESG risks. They want to know about potential impacts of that transaction. And so I think the best practice of the MDBs and the DFIs can be brought to bear. The second is the interlinking of all of these things. I think it's very hard to, and it will be harder just to put E, S, and G as separate and say, I focus on one and not the other. You, if you build infrastructure, um, it's going to have a link to productivity or technology, right? Um, not just a climate change. If you build a solar farm, for example, it's going to impact bringing goods to market or agriculture, the MDBs to bear. And then if we want to be as ambitious as the world wants to be, and that's why we have some of these global agenda, be it the Paris alignment or the sustainable development goals, we will need potentially funding by way of governments, there's going to be regulation and many other factors that take us to the next level. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the scale of potential capital flows in the coming years, if people are even half serious about trying to get action on climate change, are going to be absolutely enormous. I mean, people like Larry That's Fink correct. have said it's the biggest shift in the financial sector he's seen in his career, um, beating even the securitization revolution and the mortgage revolution. So for Larry Fink to say that, given that the securitization and mortgage revolution is what made him originally so successful, for him to say that he thinks climate's going to be even bigger is quite remarkable. But one of the things that, you know, my more cynical journalist colleagues often say is, but what about greenwashing? What about what this new phrase, woke washing, when you get a bunch of middle-aged, um, you know, asset managers thoughts about developments that are happening that could give people comfort on the greenwashing issue? I mean, how bad is greenwashing? I mean, Karen, you said that, you know, you're spending time looking at data sources at Bridgewater. Um, how do you deal with the greenwashing charges or the woke washing charges? Hey, you know, I think this is a very normal part of the development of an ecosystem, which is you get an interest. Investors say, I'm interested in this topic. I'd like to know about this topic. And then a whole industry has to line up behind that to try to meet those needs and be able to fulfill those needs. And what's happened in this area is there's sort of this barrage of data. I mean, you can literally be buried under a mountain of data that providers will tell you is ESG related. And right now, it, it takes a lot of work to figure out what here is relevant, what here is not relevant. Why am I even looking at this series? Does this have anything to do with impact on the world or evaluation of a company? And a lot of hard work is required to basically say, what are your goals? What are you trying to do? I mean, for us, I thought about it like any other investment challenge that we've had for many years, which is it's also not easy to say, what do you think the U.S. economy or the Chinese economy will do tomorrow? There's lots of data out there and it's messy. And part of the reason that you have investment professionals is to help sort that out and have a you know process that's fundamental, that's systematic, that helps figure that out. And we really emphasize systemization and diversification with the idea that you have to be able to move past someone's personal opinion on ESG issues, something that feels good, and measure it as kind of objectively as possible. And diversification in terms of if I triangulate a bunch of different reads, I feel a lot better that I'm on the right track than if I just have one data point pointing in that direction. And so when you look at sort of the industry now, there are a lot of project products called ESG that actually do very little. They look 
almost identical to the index they're matching. In fact, many of them say our goal is to deviate as little as possible from the index and you know, still be ESG. That's obviously going to change. Investors are going to raise the bar and say that's not what we want. It was a way to get started. Um, and at the same time, the data providers are going to catch on and there'll be standards. And governments hopefully will play their role in starting to mandate certain amount of disclosures um, and accounting standards and so on, just like the process of having accounting standards in the United States has made a huge global difference in how hard it is to assess you know, whether or not everything is going as you'd expect in a company. That's probably going to develop and make it in 10 years a lot easier to both sort out the data, understand what are the relevant questions to answer, and be able to do this in a rigorous way. Right. Tina, I can see you smiling when um, Karen said about trying to you know, produce things that seem very close to the index because you know, basically it's recycling a lot of the regular data. Well, first of all, I love the term woke washing. I told you I'll steal it. I, it's, but... Uh, but um, you know, look, it's, this is an industry that, as we just said, have, has had explosive growth. And, and with any, any sector, as it gets to maturation, there's sort of a weeding out and standards are established. Then there's kind of a weeding out of the wheat versus the chafe, so to speak. And so we, we are in that phase. You know, it, it's, I saw a study, for example, where... I, and a, a significant majority, uh, a significant number of firms that are PRI signatories clearly said, well, we just did it to gather some assets. So um, there is going to be a lot of that going on. But I do think that as standards develop, if, as the SEC sort of completes its work that we're all waiting on by the end of the year, um, there will be some, you know, greater discernment. And certainly, um, you know, in the woke washing category, you, you know, um, because of the events of, of last summer, you see a lot of folks, you know, um, uh, purporting to, to address that. And I think, quite frankly, the racial disparity gap is, and gender disparity gap is, gap is so wide. We welcome all new converts, right? Um, but I do think, look, we're in the investment industry where track record matters. And so yeah, many years ago, and less can a pension fund, and what I would look for is a track record, you know, did the firm or the principles of the firm evidence any sort of track record in driving change and driving value from, from those factors in their prior lives? And if, if they didn't, we welcome all newcomers. But I think, you know, what I'm hearing from investors is a clear... Um, ability and a, and, a, and a desire to sort of identify those who have been on the threshing floor, if you will, in driving change. <clears throat> Lee, I can see you wanted to come in here. You know, I, I think it's really interesting that um, we're always looking, as investors, we're always looking for some arbitrage, right? We're just looking for a place where we have some asymmetrical informational advantage or some 
something or other that allows us to identify a spot where we can, we can intermediate our capital and drive a better outcome than would otherwise be the case. And it happens to be that ESG is the new flavor of the day. Mm -hmm. It's been a flavor for quite a while and it becomes more institutionalized as, as each day goes by. And it will have its naysayers. It will have those who will look at it askance and, and suggest that it's, uh, it's temporary or it's driven by something other than financial return. But at the end of the day, we're all living off what we make, right? And so if we don't make it, sooner or later, we won't have the, the raw material required to try to make it, right? So unless we can drive return as the first order of the day in any of these activities and have the other benefits be corollary, then we're just wasting our breath in many respects. And I, I do believe that first movers, and even though this the ESG topic, investing topic's been around for a few years now, we're still first movers because it hasn't been fully embraced. And yet that embracing will be driven by the folks who control the capital as it's currently being driven. The index funds certainly demand some ESG of philosophy, if not policy, of all of the investments that they have. Others will continue to do likewise. And so at the end of the day, this is an opportunity that we either grab the bull by the horns on or we go find someplace else to play in somebody else's sandbox. Yeah, well, certainly a number of people, I mean, financial veterans, draw parallels with, between ESG and, say, what happened in the early years of leverage finance in the sense that you get the proliferation of labels, a lot of opacity, a lot of category confusion. Um, and some people, as you say, arbitraging information gaps and doing very well. And then gradually, hopefully, the industry matures and grows up. But Gareth, you were saying that, you know, you think machine learning and other innovations can help tackle the data issues. I mean, tell us what you mean by that. Yeah, I, I think it will help, you know, because it, it, it's, it, it's a chess game, some of this stuff, right? So let's take greenwashing specifically. So right now, corporate treasuries and CFOs have figured out that if you can window dress some of your ESG characteristics at your big publicly listed corporation, that you, you'll get increased investor flows. And, and just as a quick aside, because I just saw this... Uh, I, this morning from, uh, from a McKinsey study in 2020, they find that companies um, that have a high ESG rating have a 10% lower cost of capital. So CFOs are all over that, right? That is a real number to them because it, it influences in a competitive sense what it is they can invest in. So if you can get 10% lower cost of capital, you're going to do it. So back to gr greenwashing, it's very tempting just as Management teams might want to manipulate their earnings, and you need to forensically look through that, as great investment managers will. Uh, similarly, you need to look across the whole spectrum of ESG and figure out if corporate teams are, uh, are, are playing with things. And very, very interestingly, there is some data to show that companies that have a plethora of ESG policies, for instance, actually underperform because they're focused too much on the window dressing than, than they are on the, on the reality. So back to your question, machines are great at this, right? It's a chess game and machines kill at chess. And mm -hmm. so we, we employ machine learning in a big way to tease through some of these problems. And it will get us past this, um, this greenwashing phase, which by the way, is a sign of success, right? Why do people greenwash? Because it brings investor flows. And because ultimately brings value. So it's in a sense, it's a necessary evil along the path to enlightenment. 
And uh, in machine learning, to be very specific, not only can it help in teasing through the, the mundaneness of filings and corporate footnotes, et cetera, but then it can go to the next step, right? Why don't we know precisely what the contribution is of ESG data and ESG factors? Why don't we know precisely the contribution of that to your investment performance, both returns and volatility? That, is, that can be explicit. Explainable AI tools can make another example. Why do we say, well, uh, supply chains are important and leave it at that? It's because... Why, do, why, why not use technology to weave through that web, to, to, to crawl through that data? That's it. Another final point, because uh, there's, there's, there's so many advantages, but another real problem right now for any folks in the room in the investment management space is it, ESG data, let's say you have 3,000 data points on a company, to be real practical, right? So you've got Disney, that was a company that Dan Loeb spoke about this morning. There are 3,000 ESG data points about that company. What are you going to do with that? Um, how do you figure out what's the signal and, and, what's, and what's the noise? And machine learning, again, is very good at conditioning that. What's, what industry, what's material, what geography are we playing in? And how do we, fist, how do we uh, impute missing values, which is really boring or really technical, but there are ways that machines can help figure out what's the best estimate of a missing value and fill in some of the gaps. And then you've got uh, some information to play with. So this is all like technical real stuff, right? This is not ESG is great and you can, you can be good and do well. This is actually just drilling for value in the data and it's, it's there for those that are working hard to get it. Sorry for the long answer, but that was a big No, question. it's fascinating because I mean, as you know, Lee says, you know, investment management uh, as investing is all about information arbitrage and the one thing that's clear about ESG right now is that it's an incredibly mucky, murky, um, complex world with numerous data points um, where so much rests on the ratings and the ratings are, if not untested, often incomplete. Um, it reminds me a lot in many ways of what was happening in the mortgage and securitization world pre-2008 where so much was resting on the ratings um, because of all the opacity and yet out of opacity comes amazing opportunity as well. But I'm curious, Vaheen, I mean, tell me what you make of it from JP Morgan's perspective. Yeah, no, I think this is, um, I, I fully agree with the panel that we're on this journey, right? And um, I think we're coming from the perspective of risk mitigation, but we're moving towards much more intentional, what is the impact? What is the outcome? We're moving from corporate level data to say, I'm this corporate, I have a sustainability framework, um, this is my ESG report at the end of the year, to getting down to the instrument level, to actually following the money, looking at use of proceeds, right? So if someone raises a bond or raises a financing, can there be intentionality to say, this is going to fund you know, this expansion of a certain project, um, a project, an infrastructure piece, right? And then track it. So I think this naysayer world wants more disclosure, wants more data, but then is going to move away from getting to be at the company level, but to be at the instrument level, to be at the project level, and then to demand for outputs and outcomes, not just where is the money going. So for example, it won't be good enough to say, I spent half a billion dollars on the solar farm. We're going to say, so how many megawatts of energy did that create? How many households did that connect? 
was it provided to rural, you know, uh, households that didn't have access to electricity before? Or, you know, how did that change the energy mix in a certain country? So I think that's the level of data that the industry is going to demand uh, to be satisfied that some of these things that are being done really do have the impact that people are paying uh, to have. Right. So getting much more granular, much more micro level, um, much more demanding, frankly, much higher levels of transparency. But at the same time, you know, there's a collision of trying to be standardized because, you know, you can't get too bespoke. Right. So I think these two worlds are colliding, needing that very granular data, which I think you can have. And we have so much technology and, and AI to help us with. But at the same time to say, what are standards and metrics that we can all understand and apply uh, because we can't be all doing our own thing at the same time. I mean, do you on the panel all think that adopting this lens and these tools produces outperformance? I mean, is it possible, do you think, to justify ESG today on the basis that it's going to give you a big investment edge? Right. Tina, you're nodding enthusiastically. Yes. I mean, that's actually when we sell our wares, so to speak, or, or more, more, more better said, go to a prospective clients. That's what we say. And, you know, again, we, we've been doing it for 25 years, so we actually have a track record to back it. I will also note that if you look, it tends to take you to larger and growthier stocks. So, and I think, so, so I think what needs to happen, and everyone has said it, is to have better, more granular data to dissect that. But I, I truly believe if the world has to move to a more sustainable place, then those factors that measure that movement will outperform. Karen, do you see that um, from... Okay. And then when you get to specifics, it feels totally intuitive and obvious to people that you'd have to look at these issues. And so if I tell an investor that I'm thinking about how the Fed is going to make decisions, they're going to say, of course you have to do that. Of course that's what you're here for. But guess what? The Fed is telling you we care about the quality of employment, how it affects different communities. We're going to think about these issues in deciding how to set monetary policy. If I tell an investor I'm looking at things like whether or not the government is going to spend money, they would say, of course, you're supposed to be doing that. But then I would say, well, look at Biden's plans. So many of them are about combating climate change, affecting inequality. That, that just is actually what's happening in the world. So if you want to study the world, that's what you're going to see. And I'll give you even more obvious ones, which is there's no real serious investor looking at anything in any commodity sector, not thinking what's the supply and demand for this commodity going to be like in 10 years. They have to consider questions like, will oil be phased out? How am I going to know? Will my commodity be a piece of making electric vehicles? That's going to radically affect the demand. And so to me, when you're actually in it doing investment analysis, you want to be thinking about the pertinent issues that are obvious. And when you look at how the world's changed the last decade, something extreme has happened and that social and environmental concerns have just clearly become more pertinent to how the world is being run and managed. Right. Gareth and Lee, do you have views on outperformance at all? I, I think there is outperformance and I think it will continue to manifest itself and I take the point that Fahim and Taryn have made, which is, and, and Gareth really started it, around the data. Because as you can continue to drill down through the data and get more granular, 
and find those elements of arbitrage that really move performance, you'll continue to see that outperformance. And what's interesting and fascinating to me is the connectivity at that point with the data between the E, the S, and the G, right? They all converge when you drill down through the data. So for example, uh, and this is awfully simplistic, but if you think about the environmental aspect of having your workers closer to your productive facilities, right? Does that, does that improve performance if it, it diminishes your cost of getting your goods to market? Does it improve the social benefit of having your workers have a better life because they're closer to where they're working? So you can, you can go down and drill through the data and find those real elements of arbitrage that are unexploited that can really affect and drive that outperformance. Interesting. Have you seen that as well, Gareth? Yes, uh, but I hesitate because, of, of course, it was, if it was as easy as buying the ratings, the ESG scores, if that was the story, then markets are going to look through that and arbitrage that away, right? So we need to be, in order to bring everyone into the tent, why don't we be realistic and talk about the fact that if there was easy ways to outperform the market, very quickly public markets will figure that out as they should. So if we're talking about if we're talking about price discovery on companies uh, who their ESG qualities are underappreciated, that's where it gets interesting, right? Finding the not just absolute, not just uh, a great company that is recycling one percent more, but maybe uh, an industrial mid-American company where they're improving their environmental footprint. Their uh, social relations are getting better. Their employees are turning over less. They have stronger uh, sentiment, etc. All of these really important things. That company, which is trending in ESG, is a, has a much better prospect not only of outperforming its its sector peers, but actually of having a bigger impact on the environment and the society because they're coming from a place in the middle, not a place right at the edge. So we're much more interested in finding those stories. And that means looking way beyond the, the headline ratings. And that means treating ESG as an alternate data source and bringing some science to it. And again, that, the question you asked, Julian, is exactly the right question. And investment managers should be able to say, but for ESG data, here are our returns. Meaning, if we, if we run our entire investment process and take out our ESG factors and, and data, what are the residual returns? How much better are they with that data? And that, that should be part of the conversation. It shouldn't be, we just think it's, it's great. I mean, it also means looking at the rise of activists um, because, you know, certainly when I first started in financial journalism, activists were something associated with barbarians at the gate and a lot of profit-hungry, you know, greed-is-good kind of activists. Now activists um, seem to be more driven by ESG goals often. I mean, we've all seen what happened with engine room number one. Are you expecting a lot more activism to occur on the ESG side in the coming years? And how do you, do you welcome that? Do you think it's helpful or not? There's, there's activism on all levels though, right? This is why this is, this is, why this is the, the future of investing, right? Because your management team at a company, you've got your employees, uh, talking about this as a, as a core value of this, especially millennials. You have your investors asking you what it is you're doing in this space. The regulator is treating you according to how you're perceived in the market. And then your customers are demanding it from you. 
So t tell me, what, what, like that, that is enough uh, constraints around uh, corporations to ensure that they, they're going in this direction. So the activism is like a 360. I think, I think the activism is, is probably the most intelligent backlash I'd heard against ESG is whether or investors will just figure it out. You don't have anything important to do anymore. And it misses that these things are very much connected. It's always an easy excuse for governments to say, well, I can't do anything on this issue. My companies are all against it. I'm being lobbied against it. I couldn't possibly. It's going to destroy my economy. And so companies being pushed by activists to say, these are the preparations you need to make. This is the future we're going towards that has this sort of positive feedback loop with governments and their role is extremely important as a part of that. So I agree, activism at all levels, the company part and the investor's role in that being extremely important and actually getting change. Right, I can see that both Lee and Fahin were coming, Fahin yeah, and then I, Lee. I mean, I think some of the activism we've seen, especially around climate in the past 10 years have almost become institutionalized, right? The fact that we've had um, you know, a 2030 climate goal, the fact that people are making net zero commitments that's already translated into companies wanting to say we're in lockstep with the trends of the time and we're part of this institutional movement and framework towards you know improving environmental and then i would really second the fact that i think activism just doesn't doesn't come from people with placards on the street it's really coming from employees um, stakeholders, communities around. I mean, if you think of the typical company town in the U.S. or somewhere else, those companies have provided healthcare, social services. There's a clinic. You know, there's always been that sense that we have to take care of more than just um, the manufacturing process because the people who are part of it and live around it are also important. So I think it's coming from different ways and is becoming institutionalized and then will be part of our regulatory frameworks. Right. Well, I often joke, I think we're seeing the rise of the activist accountants um, because, I, you know, I used to think it would be tie-dye wearing climate change protesters who chain themselves to bulldozers who change the world. Now I think it's going to be the accountants when they start actually doing green accounting. But, but I, I think to your point about I mean, the, the, the fact that activists are interested is the ultimate affirmation that there is alpha to be had in, in investing in ESG, right? Because in theory, if you think about it, the notion of the activist, and everyone would, would accept this as a general supposition, is that they see an opportunity that's being missed, right? They see, they see an opportunity to generate investment return that's being otherwise ignored by whoever else is looking at this. And so their presence alone effectively legitimizes ESG investing and the ability of ESG investing to generate alpha. Right. Who knew that accounting and investment management could be so exciting? Um, but Tina, last word. You've got 10 seconds, 20 seconds. Oh, well, my last word is I agree with everything that has been said. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I do think, though, that, you know, and this is perhaps a, um, unpopular in this milieu, but that there is a role for government interaction. I mean, if you if you look at so the studies that look at the delta, if you will, between intentions and execution. Um, and wh where is that delta small? Um, things like, you know, avoiding corruption through factor and um, workplace and occupational uh, safety, where there's been lots of time and government regulation. Where is the delta big? 
where there has been light or no regulation. You have lots of business groups that have done a great job in providing standards and guide, you know, best practices, but you know, there's no enforcement. <laughs> right. Well, I say it's a very interesting moment in history. I never thought I'd see the time when you know the, what people like Greenpeace are doing would collide with a world of arbitrage, delta. Yeah. Um, accounting and things like that. But it is indeed, as you say, it's genuine, it's serious. It's a very significant shift in the financial landscape. Um, so for all of you who are engaged in ESG, not IROL, Steer and Grown, but Environmental, Social and Governance, um, I wish you the very best of luck in charting this new course over the next year. I'm sure it's going to be a very busy one. And thank you very much indeed um, for your time. So thank you.